Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you have your Bibles, let's open to Psalm 138. And most of the Psalms that we have looked at so far this quarter have primarily been times where David was suffering or running or uh, desperate. And this is going to be a Psalm, a little bit of a change of pace, where he was in a place of blessing. And it's more of a Psalm of praise and rejoicing. We're not exactly sure when it was written. Probably the best guess would be uh, somewhere between 2 Samuel chapter 5 and chapter 7, uh, which... That was when David had become king, and he was, in a sense, at the height of his power. And he was conquering his enemies left and right. Uh, There was one gigantic battle where they wiped out the Philistines, and the Philistines were so desperate they ran, and they left all their kind of pagan idols behind. And David and his men came in and picked up all the pagan idols, and they burned them. And it was this gigantic significance to have conquered such a great enemy. And so what we want to look at today is when you're in a season of blessing, when everything seems to be going right for you, how do you respond then? Because there's at least two different wrong ways that you can respond. One would be a prideful sense of, look at what I have done. That's easy to slip into, right? And then another way would be more of kind of a presumptive way that say, well, I, God gets all the credit and glory, but we almost kind of take God for granted. It's kind of like, well, that's just God's job. God's supposed to bless me. So I expect this, and it's not a big deal. And both of those would be problematic. So Psalm chapter 138, and let's look at the first three verses. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. And so, starts out, David is looking back and he's praising God for all the past victories. This is very important. When things in your life are going right in any sense, family, business, whatever it may be, it's important to stop and give the credit, the honor, the glory to God. Okay? Uh, let's just say you joined this ESL ministry that we just heard an announcement about. And after you're there for two or three weeks, you're befriending everybody. You're using your Spanish skills. Jenny, we'll use you as this example. And you lead somebody to Christ. And everybody's like, you're the greatest. You need to be in charge. Praise the Lord. Okay? But, but what should you do with that? You should probably go home and literally have a time where maybe you get in a room by yourself and get on your knees and say, thank you, God. Thank you for using me. Thank you for blessing me. Thank you for giving me opportunity. Thank you for giving me the gifts. I don't want to take any of this credit. You, you need to treat credit, glory, honor, almost like a hot potato. When somebody gives it to you, make sure you give it back to God really quick. Does that make sense? Just, this is kind of a side note, but maybe a helpful one. That doesn't mean if somebody comes up to you and says, thank you, thank you for how you did that. You have to say, oh, wasn't me, it was God. Right? I mean, you can say that, but I'm not, you don't have to say that every time. What, what's much more important is not so much what you say externally, is what you say to yourself internally. You understand what I mean by that? That that Between you and the Lord, you're like, Lord, I know that anything good or right that's happening in or through me, it's not me, ultimately it's you. You're giving the praise back to him. That's what David is doing. Okay, Uh, Calvin said in this passage that David was stirring himself up to praise God. Do you ever have mornings where you wake up 
You, you get your cup of coffee, you get your Bible, you get your journal, however you do it, you sit down, you start to read. But just the feelings of your heart are pretty dry and pretty numb and pretty like blah, blah, blah. I just don't feel anything exciting for the Lord. Anybody ever been there? I was there this morning. Okay? Well, what do you do? You just keep reading. You keep praying. But you're asking the Lord, Lord, help me. Don't leave me in this state. And in my experience, most of the time, if you persevere in praying like that, eventually your heart will start to praise. It may take some time to warm the engine of your heart up, but that's what good Bible reading and meditation ought to be. Now, when he says in the end of verse 1, I will sing praises to you before the gods, what does that mean? Either it means I'm, I'm praising you, God, and I want all creation to hear it, even the angelic host. It could mean that. Sometimes angels are referred to as little g gods. More than likely it means what I said before. All these pagan kind of tribal deities out there that are really no gods at all, or at best they're a demon, I'm going to shout my praises to Yahweh because he's the one true God. And I'm not going to be ashamed to praise him even publicly. Praise him in your heart. Praise him publicly. Okay? He goes to the temple. He's bowing down. He's praying. He's worshiping. And then the second part of verse 2 is, is a kind of a hard verse to translate. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. And there's even one translation that says you have magnified your word above your name. Now, here's, here's the best understanding of probably what it means is that God keeps his word. When God makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. That God's word is as good as his name. We want to be men and women like that, right? That are people of integrity, right? My word is my bond. It's my oath. If I give you my word, I'll always keep it. But here's the problem. Even if you are the highest you know, person in this room of integrity, the problem is you don't control all things, so you can't always keep your word. Right? What if there's a meeting you're supposed to be at at 6.30 a.m. this morning? You say, I promise you, I will be there on time. I'll be there early. You can count on it. And you get in a car wreck and you're dead. Right? Well, you didn't keep your word. Now, nobody's going to fault you because you're not God. But God is so powerful. When he makes a promise, he's always there. And I think probably part of what David was doing, he was looking back on, hey, God, when I was a little teenage boy, I was a little shepherd. You told me I was going to be king of your people one day. And then I had to wait and suffer for many long years. And it didn't seem like it was coming. But it came. You kept your word. You're a faithful God. It is good to recount to ourselves all of God's past faithfulness. Remember that. Praise. Okay? Y'all probably heard me say this before, but I say it because it helps me so much. It's great to preach the gospel to yourself. It's also great to preach your own personal history to yourself. Right, to look back on the past 46 years, whatever it may be for you, and think of God's specific, tangible faithfulness in your life. It will stir your heart up to praise. Now verse 3, okay, he says, You've made me bold with strength in my soul. Matthew Henry says, You've made me stout-hearted. Another commentator said, You invigorated me. What he's saying is, God, the internal stamina that it took to persevere and to be faithful you gave it to me. Our oldest just graduated college yesterday, and my wife and I were kind of reminiscing a little bit. In one sense, we said it flew by, and it's one of those things you, you probably heard the quote. I don't know who first said it. It's like, the years went by fast, the days went by very slowly sometimes. <laughs> and you look back, and it's like, Lord, you gave me the strength not to murder that child. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. 
Thank you, Lord, that you helped me make it so that we could get to this point. Okay? Give him the praise. All right? I, the first key to handling success in life is pause and give all the credit, all the praise for anything good or right happening in or through you, all to God. Past praise. But then you should move on. Don't stop there to future praise. Look at verse 4. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Now, future praise. What does that mean? It means you're literally praising God for something that hasn't happened yet, but because it's God, you're just as sure that it will happen as you are of the things that have already happened. In David's day, he conquered all the surrounding enemies. If you go read 2 Chronicles, there was a day in Solomon's age where it says all the kings of the earth were coming to hear Solomon's wisdom. And probably the best understanding of that is not literally every single king, but it was all the known kings of the known world. Right? You hear about the Queen of Sheba, people coming from afar to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But what this is, guys, is this is a foreshadowing of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11, through 11, when the true Davidic king sits on the true heavenly throne and literally every knee and every tongue confess that he is Lord. It's coming. And so even for us, you watch TV, you listen to the radio, you hear about all the terrible things in our culture and how it feels like the world is falling apart, there's a right way to say, God, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I believe in the end you're going to win. And so I'm hopeful. Somebody was asking me about a situation recently uh, that practically speaking looks very bleak. And they were saying, man, how are you feeling about this? Where do you fall out? And I said, honestly, I fall out 51% positive. It's okay. That's better than I thought you were going to say. Why do you say 51% positive? I said, because I'm a Christian. And I'm ultimately an optimist theologically. Because I believe in the end, God will accomplish all his good purposes, even if we don't get the privilege of seeing it in our lifetime. And I think that's where we should all live as believers. Look at verse 5. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Maybe the main way to see the glory of God is when God, in all of his grandeur, is happy to condescend and work with people like us. And do you remember in Psalm chapter 8, it's like David is looking at the heavens and all the glory and he's worshiping and he says... What is man that you are mindful of us? I mean, we're, we're, we're like a little ant compared to God. And God has such compassion, such care. We should think about that, and it should stir our hearts. I was sharing the gospel. This has been a couple years ago with a uh, football player. Uh, not football player, basketball player at Sanford. And it's amazing. He grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. He literally had never, to his ears, he said, I've never heard the gospel before. And so as I'm explaining it to him, when he, he, he would say over and over again, he would say, this, are you serious? He's like, this is too good to be true. I was like, I know, and yet it is true. And for those of us that have grown up in the church and we swim our whole lives in the church culture, there is a danger of getting bored with the gospel, of just getting overly familiar with it, right? And we need to pray and meditate and work to stir our hearts up to have a fresh sense of shock and awe. The one supreme creator of all things Knows me, likes me, cares about me, chose me. It's shocking. It's scandalous. It shouldn't be so. And yet it is. 
and it ought to lead us to a lot of praise. And then, future faithfulness. Okay? Look at verse 7 through 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. I love that phrase. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Now, David is not a uh, prosperity gospel guy. And here's what I mean. He doesn't experience a lot of good stuff and just say, that's right, I'm getting my blessing, my best life now, and it's just going to be this way forever. Okay? I mean, Christians ought to be optimistic about the long game. We ought to be realistic about the short game. It's probably going to be painful. And David realizes, even though I'm on a mountaintop right now, it's probably not going to last. I'm probably going to be back in the valley pretty soon. And so, God, part of what I'm praising you for, but it's also a prayer as well, is keep me strong, keep me faithful, even when I go back into the valley. And you know one of the things, I mean, up until this point, okay, if we're, if we're grounding this in, in history, okay, if, if you're remembering your Bible reading, this is 2 Samuel chapter 5 to 7. If you're like, I don't remember that specifically, but this is Saul is dead and David is king early in the reign. What's coming not too far after this? This would be the crowd participation part. Take a guess just for fun. It's a big enough crowd. If you get it wrong, nobody will know it was you. Bathsheba is going to come. What's going to come after that? His own son is going to try to kill him and have a civil war. He's going to be able to run all over again. Right? So obviously... One application is don't have an affair. It's never worth it. But the, the, the bigger, broader application for all of us is this. David had been in the valley. He was on the mountaintop. He's wise enough to know the valley's probably coming back around again. So, Lord, I'm going to sing your praises while I'm on the mountaintop. I'm going to enjoy it while it lasts. And I'm going to praise you that in, in the end, we're all going to feast in the house of Zion forever. But in between now and then, there's probably going to be another valley I've got to go through. And I'm asking you, God, prepare me for that to stay strong. Um, have any of you ever heard of the Stockdale Principle? Okay. If you've ever read the book, Good to Great, okay, fairly well-known business book, uh, Jim Collins interviews a man in there named Admiral Stockdale, who I don't think is a Christian. Uh, I don't know for sure. But he was a POW for like seven or eight years in the Vietnam War. He was shot down early in the war, and he was interviewed, but he survived. He was tortured over 20 times. He made it out, and he came up with this principle. He said, you know the people that went crazy in the Hanoi Hilton, they didn't make it out? It was the optimist. Now, here's the way he explained it. All the people are like, the war will be over by Christmas. I know the war, I just have confidence America's going to win, we're going to be home by Christmas. Or it's like, next year, by next year, there'll be some kind of prisoner exchange. And He's like, they all went nuts. They couldn't handle it. And so here was his principle. He said, you have to believe two things. Number one, you have to confront the brutal facts, how bad it really is. You have to be like ruthlessly honest with yourself. It's like, it's going to be really bad. We have no idea how long we're going to be here, and we're probably going to get tortured. But then he said, even while you're confronting brutal facts, you never lose faith in ultimate victory. We will conquer in the long run. Now, I love that principle. I also don't know how you can 
honestly and genuinely hold to that principle unless you're a Christian. Right? Because I can't guarantee the victory in my own life, but he can. And David is a great picture of that. Okay? Verse 8. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. I think in one sense this is an Old Testament picture of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If you're one of God's people, that means he has good plans for you. And he is the one that's going to guarantee that they all work out. So whatever you're worried about, in your business, in your family, with your kids, in your marriage, God is going to accomplish it in the right time. So I want to uh, spend a little bit more time maybe this morning on application. All right? Because when we meditate on God's great faithfulness in the past and in the future... Like with many truths in the Bible, there's a ditch on both sides of the road. And the ditch on one side of the road would be to become passive. Okay? And, and we don't want to do that. So let's, let me summarize it this way. Maybe uh, when good things are happening in your life, th- there's this kind of ditch as you look towards the future. What I would call a prideful, man-centered proactivity. Now, you would not say it out loud this way if you're a good Broward member because you know that you would get scorned. But I fear that many of us say it to ourselves this way in the back of our heart. It's like, yeah, I know about all this great stuff, but I was there too. And part of the reason I'm succeeding is I've been working my tail off. At some level, I mean, God gets most of the credit, but I at least get like an asterisk, right? I get a footnote. Part of the reason why things are going so good in my life is right here. And so by golly, I'm going to keep working. I'm an independent American entrepreneur. I'm going to get the job done. And guess what? Of course I'll keep succeeding. Now, that's wrong for multiple reasons. But here's maybe the the biggest danger. That will eventually lead to a crushing burden of anxiety that you don't want to carry and you can't carry. Okay, It won't work if you're loading all that up on your back. But the ditch on the other side of the road would be what I would call a presumptive so-called God-centered passivity. Yeah, God has been blessing me. God's just so good. Yeah, I don't deserve it. I'll be honest, I'm kind of a lazy bum, you know. I don't go to work most days, you know. But God just keeps blessing my sock off. I guess that's how grace works. This is awesome. More time at a golf course, baby. And so I'm just going to keep chilling for Jesus. He's going to keep blessing me, and everybody's going to be happy. Okay? And listen, that apathy, if, you, if you've ever tried it for a little bit, you already know that will backfire pretty bad in the long run. So, what, what is the answer to that? Okay, um, I have a buddy. He's in full-time ministry. And, and he, he will be honest. He said, I feel like my whole life is a pendulum swing between anxiety and apathy. He said, I typically start my... This guy's in college ministry. He said, so when you're in college ministry, everything is about semesters. He said, I start my semesters in anxiety. I'm planning, I'm working hard, and the burden feels heavy, and I'm trying to be great, and I'm trying to be a perfectionist. And somewhere about the middle of the semester, I realize I'm behind, I'm not accomplishing all my goals, maybe my goals were too lofty. And he said, I just swing the pendulum and say, oh, forget it, God's sovereign. I just kind of give up and start coasting. Now, the good thing is, at least he realized this. But listen, because he's in full-time ministry, he's really good at tacking Jesus' name on the back end of it, Right? When he's in the anxious mode, the man-centered mode, it's like, I'm working hard as under the Lord. But really, he's in some kind of sinful kind of perfectionism that's almost like OCD, and it's like, this is not going to work out well. 
We have seen this movie before. And when he finally hits the wall, and he doesn't keep all his goals perfectly, he just swings over to God's sovereign. Praise the Lord. Come to me, all who are weary. I'm just going to rest the rest of the semester, Lord Jesus. <laughs> and part of why I'm sharing this, guys, is I think most of us are a lot better at this than we know. And you may say, I don't swing the pendulum. Good for you. That probably just means you just have a home that you bought in one ditch. And you just live there. And you've built a theology around it. Okay? So if the answer is not a prideful, man-centered workaholism, and it's neither this apathetic, lazy, so-called God-centered passivity, what is the real answer? And I think it's this. It, it's proactive dependence. It, it's a proactive, God-centered activity. I'm going to work Hard as unto the Lord, but God, I'm not going to trust in any of my efforts. I, I probably quoted this in here before because I love this quote. There's an old Puritan that used to say, it's hard to perform all righteousness and trust in none. And he was talking more about the distinction between sanctification and justification, right? If you're a Christian, you've been saved fully by grace, but now you are supposed to be radically serious about pursuing a holy life, but you don't put any of your hope in your own pursuit of holiness. You put all your hope and what Jesus did for you on the cross. But it works here too, guys. And just normal life. Trying to love your spouse better. Trying to serve them better. Trying to make your marriage better. You should work hard as under the Lord. But then you should go to bed and say, God, if the wind of the Spirit doesn't blow, my marriage is going to fail. Parenting. You should work hard as under the Lord. You should discipline them. You should disciple them. You should seek to raise them and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But I'm just telling you, after 22 years, there are going to be many a day where if you're brutal... I mean, my wife and I have turned to each other so many times. And we say this, and we're 51% joking, but we're 49% serious. We look at each other when our kid says or does something really stupid, and we just say, we're failures. We're absolute failures. We, we feel like we have worked to the bone, and he says that, and we're kind of joking, but we kind of feel it sometimes. So... What do you do? You give up? No, you can't give up. You're stuck with them, right? So you, you keep working your fingers to the bone, but then you said, unless the Lord builds the house, we are laboring in vain as we try to build it. And go read Psalm 127. I think the main thing on Solomon's mind was raising kids. Okay. So how, how does this practically play out in your, play out in your life? For me, the main place that these two truths intersect the most is in your prayer life. Because just think about it with me for a second. It makes some logical sense, right? If I say something to one of my kids like, you have to take a shower every day, son. That maybe he'll listen and say, okay, I'll start taking a shower every day. It, it, put it in the business realm, okay? If, it, it makes some logical sense. If you go see your customers, you talk to them, you're nice to them, you make the sales appointment that maybe they listen, they like your product, and they buy it from you, right? It makes no logical sense that if I go home today and I go in a room all by myself and I shut the door where nobody else can hear me and I talk out loud into the air and I say, God, would you have mercy on my child that's wandering from the faith. It makes no logical sense that God might just instantly save him. But that's the kind of stuff God does. And I'm not saying sales calls aren't important and 
talking to your children about personal hygiene is not important. Keep doing all that. I'm just saying the prayer closet is the most important place. And if we're praying the way that we ought to be praying, prayer is work, is it not? It's a labor. It's a wrestling match. It's work. And yet, it's all dependence. So, to me, the nexus of all this, it's a proactive, desperate, dependent prayer life. A clinging prayer life. A hungry prayer life. A God have mercy on me prayer life. A regular prayer life. So I just ask you to ask yourself this. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? And I'd I'd go maybe a step further and say, how's your prayer life with others? How's your corporate prayer life? How's your prayer life with your spouse? How's your prayer life with your family? How's your prayer life with your accountability group or whatever kind of small group you're in? Now, um, I want us to go back for just a second to verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Basically, here's what that's saying in layman's terms. God likes humble people. God doesn't like arrogant people. Probably most of us at some point have been involved in youth sports, correct? Right? Either you were the mom bringing the, the, the drinks and the goodies that the kids care about anyway. They're not even there for the soccer, right? Or you're the dad that was the last one to say not it, and so you ended up being the basketball coach. Right? So you come in there. You're not a basketball genius, but you know more than the five-year-olds do, right? And if there's kind of a humble five-year-old that says, Hey, Mr. Scott, you know, I just teach me how to shoot the layup and put me in anywhere. I don't care. Put me in, coach. I just want to play. You probably, your heart's going to be drawn to that kid, right? He's humble. He's realistic. He realizes he's a five-year-old. But if you have another five-year-old that kind of swaggers in there like he's John Wayne, He's like, hey, coach, I wrote up a couple plays at home. Let me try to instruct you. After a while, that's going to get old, right? When you're telling him how to set the pick, and he's like, no, 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 that's not how you set the pick. I mean, at some point, you're going to be like, you're on the bench forever (laughs) as long as I'm the coach, right? I have too many people in my own house telling me what to do. I don't need to spend my volunteer time on a Thursday night to show up to have some random five-year-old that I don't even know tell me what to do. Right? How do you think the Lord of the universe feels when we come to him and there's a sense of, God, I'm trying to be faithful, but I'm struggling. I feel like I'm fumbling forward. I feel like it's not even two steps forward, one step back. It feels more like one step forward, ten steps back. But would you have mercy? Would you help me? God's heart is drawn to people like that. He loves the humility. He loves the honesty. And if you're kind of like, hey, I got this, God. I'm, I'm doing fine down here. You know, go help somebody else. There's probably somebody in Africa that needs some help. But uh, I'm taking care of business over here. Now, again, all of y'all are like, what moron would say that? I don't think, okay, Rebecca raised her hand. I appreciate that honestly, okay? I don't know that any of us would actually say it out loud. She was, oh, that's what she was doing. Okay, that was a good husband. Good move there. All right. But, but here, and, and I think you're understanding where I'm trying to go with this. I don't think any of us ever say it out loud, but my guess is all of us have said it. And here's the way that we say it subconsciously, is any day you just skip prayer. A prayerless life is a life of shaking your fist of self-sufficiency in God's face. I got this. And you're like, that's not what I was doing. I was just so busy. Exactly. 
You were so busy running your own life, it wasn't that important to go beg God to help you because you think you got it. No wonder things aren't going well. The best life is a broken, humble, desperate, dependent prayer life. Okay? And God is drawn to the lowly. And the clearest way we see this in history is He literally left heaven to come to earth to pursue us. That's how much He loves us. That's how humble He is. That He was willing to come and dwell with the humble. And guys, this strikes me every time I think about it. We've all read the gospel accounts, right? That Jesus, Luke 5, 16, rose up early as was His practice to go to a desolate place and pray. If the God-man, sinless since birth, no indwelling sin, found it necessary to live His 33 years of righteous life, to be in constant communion with the Father, how much more should that be true of me and you? So let's be serious about our prayer lives, about our dependence, but when we fail, let's remember the Lord Jesus Christ is so much more than a model and example. He's our Savior. He did live the perfect life that we're supposed to live, that we can't live in our place as our substitute. And then he went to the cross and he died as our atoning sacrifice. But guys, even think about this. In his humanity, how did he die so well, suffering hell for us? He died in a place of prayer and dependence, right? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Let's live that way. Supposedly at one point in her life, Queen Elizabeth mm -hmm. prayed this. Look upon the wounds of thy hands and then forsake not the work of thy hands. Let's live that way. Lord Jesus, thank you for your life. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. May our hearts be filled with praise, with joy, with thanksgiving, with security, with hope, with confidence, with optimism. But would it not become a sinful, presumptive, prideful type of optimism that leads to anxiety or to apathy? May, may by the Spirit filling us, may we learn to live in that tension of working hard as unto the Lord but then resting in none of our efforts but resting in the finished work of Christ in our place. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.